But anyway, uh, I asked them, and I'll ask you guys, do all of you guys like parades? Yeah. I know my mother-in-law does. Uh, from the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade to uh, the Rose Bowl Parade, Fourth of July celebrations in Washington, D.C., uh, and she tries never to miss seeing any of them, and I, I think a lot of people feel that way because, you know, parades have a way of taking these little disparate groups of people and making them into a common community of celebration, into a, a, a core of collective cheerleaders, a, a mutual society of admiration. And if you think about it, the same kind of thing happens right here every Sunday as uh, couples and singles and, and little families like ours uh, join in with one another as the gathered people of God, gathered to commemorate and to celebrate the victory that we have in Christ. Uh, and maybe especially so today, because uh, this Sunday uh, marks the beginning of the parade season and the liturgy of the church. You probably noticed that. We had quite a parade coming down the center aisle today, uh, and I thank all of you for that. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, you know, it's not just this individual church, because uh, for the whole church, the whole visible church, uh, there are believers around the world celebrating in the same way that we are, by waving palms and, and singing songs in praise to our great Savior, uh, which in God's providence is the theme not only of the day, uh, but of our psalm for today as well, which is Psalm 40. And so I hope you're following along. Uh, I'm going to be reading this morning from the New Living Translation. So this is Psalm 40, beginning in verse 1, and it's superscribed for the choir master, a psalm of David. And he writes, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joy of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. Oh, Lord, my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to an end of them. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. And now that you've made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. And then I said, look, I have come. I've come as it's written about me in the scriptures. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out, as you, O Lord, well know. I have not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told everyone in the great assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. And Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles surround me. Too many to count. My sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head and I've lost all my courage. Please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. May those who try to destroy me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame. 
for they said, Aha, we've got him now. But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, The Lord is great. And as for me, since I am poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper and my savior. Oh my God, do not delay. It's the word of the Lord. And when we were reading through that, did you catch kind of the pendulum swing of the emotions in that text going from the, uh, the mountaintops of praise all the way down to the, the muddy bog pit below? And, and you know, it's one of the, the things I think is really great about God's word is that it calls us to delight in the Lord and uh, to share the message of his love and blessings while at the same time not candy coating or glossing over the actual ups and downs of life. Because, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's right in that in-between that we seem to live most of our lives, isn't it? You know, in that kind of state, of, you're, you're enjoying the parade of life on the one hand, even as we realize that we're marching in it, that before long we're going to need to pull on our muck boots and clean up the mess, right? You guys all know what muck boots are, right? Yeah. We used to call them barn boots, but, but either way, that's those waterproof shoes, you know, you pull on... Those rubber, uh, rubber boots you pull on over your regular shoes when you're walking in the barnyard on one of those wet, soggy days. Uh, well, it kind of sounds like David might have needed a pair of muck boots because even as he's praising God and trumpeting God's goodness, he's recalling some of the muck of life that he'd been marching through. Like in, in verse 2 when we read, He lifted me out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. You see, David here is acknowledging that the parade of life comes with a paradox, uh, with ups and downs, with bitter and, and sweet, with joy and tears, just like it did for our Lord Jesus on that Sunday morning long ago that really kicked off the last week of his earthly life with an almost carnival-like atmosphere. And you have to try to picture the scene in Jesus' day as the holy city becomes crowded with visitors. Like, just picture Zephyr Hills in the wintertime, <laughs> but way worse, okay, right? I mean, can, can you imagine a town swelling to maybe six times as normal? Maybe you can yeah. imagine a town swelling to six times as normal size. Uh, that's what happened to Jerusalem because of the influx of pilgrims arriving to celebrate uh, the holiday festival of Passover, the celebration marking the Jews' miraculous deliverance from slavery and the advent of the Hebrew nation. So it was, uh, it was their version of Independence Day, both physically and spiritually. Uh, and so you have to imagine every hotel room filled, uh, every spare bedroom packed with relatives, uh, campsites popping up on every open hillside occupied by Jewish people who have traveled from throughout the known world to keep this sacred commitment. Uh, and because of the encroaching mass of people, preparation for Passover was a big deal. Uh, you know, in, in the months, months leading up to the event, bridges and roads had to be put in shape for the thousands of pilgrims uh, that would stream into the city. Uh, and a whole cleaning process went on to ensure that the city uh, and its surrounds were ceremonially clean for the feast which was going to culminate in the Passover lambs being sacrificed in the temple. And it's at the beginning of this big week that our text for today 
intersects with the Palm Sunday narratives in the gospel, kind of almost like if you can imagine parting the gray morning fog and the dust of pilgrims' feet as Jesus makes his dramatic public entry into the city. And, you know, he's not just coming for the the party atmosphere. He's coming with purpose. He's coming with a plan. Uh, And more than that, he's coming in fulfillment of prophecy and to show God's people that all these animals that they had been killing and all this blood that they had been spilling and all these rituals that they were observing uh, had been just signs and placeholders pointing to him. Uh, And you don't have to take my word for that. Uh, Actually, the writer of the book of Hebrews reaches all the way back into our text today, into Psalm 40, and pulls out a section of it when he's writing Hebrews 10. So if you are following along in your Bibles, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 1, it says the uh, old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide a perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and and now this is when the writer of Hebrews is going to reach in and start quoting from Psalm 40, our psalm for today. He quotes, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or sin offerings. And then I said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it was written about me in the Scriptures. At first Christ said, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. And then he said, look, I have come to do your will. And he put to death the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once, once for all time. You know, when Jesus knew that that time was coming. In fact, he had told his men as they had gotten closer and closer to Jerusalem, Jesus had repeatedly warned them that he would be put to death there. And he would raise to life on the third day. But knowing, knowing how quickly that time was coming, and knowing really that right from his very first public miracle, that his mission and ministry would put him on Uh, an inevitable collision course with the religious and political leaders of the day, both Jewish uh, and Roman. And just like I was telling the kids, the the difference between our Lord and these worldly forces that are about to be arrayed against him stand out in really sharp contrast on Palm Sunday. Because, as I told them, Jesus wasn't the only important person making an entry into the holy city on this week. A big entry. Because also entering Jerusalem at Passover from the opposite side of the city was the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. So can you kind of feel the tension as the two parades are, are heading toward each other? And Pilate, like most politicians then and now, uh, liked to travel in style. Uh, because you see, the, like other Roman governors of Judea before him, Pilate didn't live right in the heart of the capital city. Uh, he lived in Caesarea by the sea, so... 
Uh, in other words, we could say Pilate spent most of his time in his beach house. But with crowds of devoted Jews flowing into Jerusalem to commemorate their historic liberation from the might of Egypt, the Romans naturally wanted to put on a display of force, uh, a display to discourage uprisings and to keep the Jews from getting any idea about the possibility of liberation from Rome. So during the Passover season, the Roman procurator, the Roman governor, moved his headquarters to Jerusalem to reinforce the Roman garrison permanently stationed in the Antonia Fortress that overlooked the Jewish temple and its courts with a great show of force, a show designed to remind the people that they might have gotten out from underneath the sandal of the Egyptian pharaoh, but they were not going to throw off the boot of Rome. And so I want, you to, I want to read to you how one scholar described this show of military force. He writes, The spectacle that attended the procurator's entrance into the city included cavalry on horses, foot soldiers with leather armor, helmets, and weapons, imperial banners and golden eagles mounted on poles glinting in the sun, and in the middle of the procession, Pilate, the Roman governor, coming in the name of the emperor who expected his subjects to worship him, as God would have been a sobering, intimidating demonstration of raw imperial power and a visually poignant extension of the theology of Caesar's empire, the theology that was believed to have ushered in a new era of world peace, peace through Roman strength. And can you imagine what that would have looked like? The, the sights and sounds of that imperial procession, the, the, the marching of the soldiers' feet and the creaking of saddles and and the clinking of bridles and the, the beating of drums and, and the swirling of, of dust rising from this whole 10th Roman legion in full parade dress. And then there's Jesus' little procession. It was pretty different, right? His procession started out really small, beginning on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and up to the eastern gate and from there into the city and then crowds started to, to gather slowly, gawking to see this rabbi from Galilee and whether perhaps he would perform another miracle like they'd heard about. Because uh, now remember, Jesus usually moved around pretty quietly. Remember, a lot of times in the Gospels, uh, records Jesus telling someone who was healed, now go and don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anyone. You see, but here intentionally... He intentionally sets in motion a well-planned and perfectly timed parade because not only was the manner of his arrival significant as we've seen from Old Testament scriptures, but his arrival at the time of the Passover festival was significant and a clear foreshadowing of his death uh, in offering himself as the Passover lamb and the final sacrifice. So now Jesus instructs two of his disciples to uh, go ahead of them into the next village and Upon entering the village, immediately they'd see a colt tied there that had never been ridden. And they were to untie the colt and bring it back to Jesus. And if anybody asked them what they were doing, they were simply to say, the, the Lord needs the colt. And immediately they would be given permission to take it. Pretty amazing, right? Now, whether it was a, a pure miracle, which it could have been, or some prearrangement Jesus had made with the owner of the animal, text doesn't tell us. But either way, Jesus slowly rode into Jerusalem fully aware of the prophecy he was fulfilling. And as he gets close to the city, Matthew 21, 9 tells us that 
Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting. And you know, their reaction wasn't by chance either. It's the promise of our primary text today from Psalm 40 when David wrote, But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, The Lord is great. But you know, that's not all that they were saying because Matthew's text continues. The people around him, around Jesus, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that's actually another direct link back to Scripture, and this time to Psalm 118, because that's where that line comes from. Uh, Those words that the people were singing and shouting uh, come from Psalm 118. It's a direct quote right out of their Psalter hymnal. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, And it's a hymn that was really familiar to the people. It's a liturgy that comes directly from temple worship uh, and one that also speaks of the waving of palms and of the life of the Messiah and his intention to offer up that life for his people. And it really kind of completes the background picture uh, to Jesus' triumphal entry because Psalm 118 describes the coming of the king into the city. But what's so striking about its explanation is that the king in Psalm 118 enters not to receive a throne, but to ascend to the altar and to offer a sacrifice. And in Psalm 118, 19, is the king speaking. He says, open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord and the godly enter here. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, please, Lord, save us. Please, Lord, give us success. And those words, save us, from that Hebrew phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna, appear only once in the Old Testament in that way, in Psalm 118. But when we get to the time of Jesus, of his triumphal entry, that's what the people were, were singing and calling out to him as they traveled into the city. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, we pray. Deliver us. And what they're doing is making a prayer. A prayer to be delivered. And they call Jesus son of David, identifying him with the royal line and recognizing him as the Messiah of the Davidic kingdom. But, you know, while the crowds might recognize that Jesus could possibly be their long-awaited king, what they don't see or maybe what they refuse to see is that Jesus is a different kind of king that they expected. That maybe he uh, is not going to rule the way that they expected because Hosanna isn't the last line of that song. It continues, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Join the festival with branches up to the horns of the altar. And you see these people that cried out to be saved, the, the Lord didn't ignore them. Just as David echoes in the first verse of Psalm 40 today when he said, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. The Lord heard his people's cry, and he sent a Savior, but just not what they expected. Because the altar on which Jesus poured out the blood of his covenant wasn't the bronze altar in the temple. It was the table in the upper room at the Lord's Supper. And the throne that Jesus is about to ascend is not the golden seed of Solomon, but the wood of the cross. And you see the contrast here between what the Jews expected and what Jesus offered? 
between Pilate's march into the city and Jesus' tiny little procession? Because you see, Pilate's march proclaimed the rule of man. And Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate proclaimed uh, a procession that was a demonstration of raw imperial power. Jesus' parade was a demonstration of power restrained. And it set the course for the rest of this week that we see him embark on, on this journey to the cross. Humbly, meekly, but confidently, knowing that this festival frenzy of waving palms uh, and the praise songs of the people and the braying of donkeys would soon give way to the wretchedness of betrayal, to the anguish of abandonment, as those very same people who had shouted Hosanna will soon be shouting crucify him. And so this holy week that we enter here in his wake, which kind of flows in that in-between we talked about that breaks between those two parades, between those two different crowds, that lives between those two clashing moods and those two different approaches toward God and his people, as Jesus rides slowly and silently into Jerusalem and into that fray. And what he does is leave us to decide which group to get in line behind. Because then, as now, when Jesus entered the city, the whole place was stirred and people were asking, who is this? Who is this? It's the same question that people uh, have been asking for the last 2,000 years. And you know, on the surface of it, it seems like a question of identification, but it's really so much more than that. It's the most critical question that you will ever be asked, and it's one that everyone has to answer. And so how do you answer it? Can you answer it? And the answer is important because your eternity is at stake. And for those who have ears to hear, uh, the text today I think is just one of a thousand examples that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that you have put your trust in the right person. That you haven't put your trust in a dead Jewish rabbi uh, or a great teacher, but you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And... I think that's really one of the things that keeps us in his joy is knowing that that invitation that Christ extends to us uh, is extended to all of us. That same invitation from Psalm 40 and that same invitation goes out to all of God's people. The same question that people ask as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, who is this? And I'm here to tell you that you'll never find the right answer by taking a public opinion poll because it seems like the crowd was usually always wrong when they got together to decide who Jesus was. Some thought he was Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But they were wrong about all of those counts. And today, today the question that we need to be asking ourselves is not just who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to you? And I think, you know, if we were to take that poll, if we were to ask people those questions, uh, we'd probably get one of four answers. He's either a legend, a lunatic, a liar, or is he the Lord? You know, some folks say he's a legend, that he never really was. The trouble with that, though, is you can't really hold that position intellectually. And I think uh, C.S. Lewis actually gave a, a great quote concerning the rest of those. He said, when he wrote about Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Christ that they're ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but they don't accept his claims to be God. He said, that's the one thing we must not say, because a man who was really a good man and said the sort of things that Jesus did would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would be either a lunatic on the level of someone who claimed to be a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either this man was who he said he is as the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But you can't shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him, you can kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But you can't come up with a patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He's not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. So who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he a good teacher? Is he a fake? Or something much more? But as I said, the only trouble is today as we prepare to leave, either way, none of those ideas really answer the heart of the matter because as we leave here from the service and go back out into the world today, into our everyday lives, the question remaining is not so much who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Are you confident today that you can uh, answer in the words of Romans and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If you can do that, you'll be saved. But if you don't have that assurance today, if you haven't answered that question, or if you're just learning today that you haven't answered it correctly in the light of the truth of God's word, I want to invite you to do that as we pray together because the Father is willing, the Spirit is calling, and the Lord is moving. And now is the time. Today is the day. Don't let his parade pass you by. Repent and believe the gospel and be saved as we pray together.